Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Bidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring a song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Crack that mm. delicious canned snack. Uh, I am drinking the Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest, uh, and it, I think it's it's the first, yeah, it's the first fest beer I've had since I was at Oktoberfest in Munich. Does the beer taste different now that you've experienced the real thing? It's just different in general. Uh, I think it was already different. The 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 beer at the fest is it's all like a little lower ABV. That's probably very it's, smart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if anyone saw on our Instagram, but I heard a lot of songs from the pod at Oktoberfest. The bands, the bands late at night, they play. You know, they they play German Oompa music up until like seven p.m. and then they start playing like pop hits and they play some wild shit here's the thing does this go back to our we've talked about the theory i don't know if the theory but like the idea that there are so many moderately big hits here that become giant hits in europe and we can't necessarily put our finger on why certain songs pop off do you think like We've covered a lot of songs in this podcast already. In Europe, are they just like the old school hits? Because they were number ones over there when they were number 23s over here? The the one that sticks out, actually, we haven't talked about yet, but I know we will. Uh, I heard Four Non Blondes' What's Up several times. And the entire place, and these tents are like thousands of people. Everyone is singing every word. That's a great example. Would that happen in the U.S.? It's a song that I think everyone knows. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think, think people so. would be as excited. But also, everyone on Oktoberfest is yeah, very but, excited. But whatever. So. Like, for lack of better ideas, if 99 Luft Balloons came on at a German bar here in New York during Oktoberfest, <laughs> I think people would be like, yeah. But would they be like truly yeah. deep down excited for this random German song? I don't know. No, well, that's one that makes sense because obviously, German hit, German song. Um, but yeah, I heard, I heard many and the bands there are so good. Like, and they're like a 15 piece band. Oh, it's incredible. It's very cool. Uh, experience it. It's the song we're covering tonight. Would a German audience be excited? Let me scroll about? down to the chart section. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not listed, but I bet it charted there. I don't know how excited they'd be, but I bet it charted there. Based on yeah. the other countries that it appears to chart it in, but yeah, that's a, that's a great seg. We should dive in to the the song we're going to talk about tonight. Um, we have a great song and great band to talk about, and then also quite a bit of history uh, behind it. So we should dive in, and you know, it probably would have helped if I would have queued this up on my phone while I was waiting for you. But I was listening to the album this evening, actually. So. I have it right here. Here's a song we are discussing tonight on You Wanted a Hit. 
For those that can't see my confused face, I have a confused face. Oh, man. I thought I recognized it, but also that, like, immediate intro had, like, a very, like, 1970s Springsteen vibe to it. But then yeah, it hit, I hear and that. I was like, no, definitely not. Uh, well, the chorus is coming. Okay, maybe. Oh, this is, this is interesting. Down. We getting close. Yep. This sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm gonna go with I don't know this. What? Yeah, I don't think I know this. Oh my gosh. I'm shocked. I'm, I'm going to go with like perhaps just a tingy. I'm hearing off your iPhone kind of thing here, but like I don't. Oh I don't wow! Know I know this. Huh? You've you've had one for me at least one that I didn't know. I don't know if it's gone the other way. Yeah, it might have been like weird as fuck. This one sounds like a song that I should know. Sounds like a song that you would enjoy. All right, well, let's talk about it. Maybe it'll come back to me. Let's talk about it. There, confused, there's a so. lot to talk about. Let's go. Well, this is 1987's. Beds Are Burning by Sydney, Australia rock band Midnight Oil. Motherfucker loves the Australian bands. In my defense, I was born in 1987. That's true. So the whole year is a blind spot for my music taste because mm-hmm. my ears hadn't developed yet. Uh, well, yeah, you know. But I, I might know the song if we like get into it more. It sounded familiar. Honestly, the yeah. voice sounded more familiar than the actual song. Mm, okay. But I don't, I assume it's like a one-day wonder that I would not have known anything else, so I could be way off. Uh, I'm not sure that I would call them that, uh, but we'll learn more about that. And it's funny that you say that it was, uh, you know, that's the year you are born, so maybe you don't know it. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I hear it still, fair, you know, from time to time, and I recognize it, but I kind of have felt like this song's like been around my whole life and i just have heard it and uh i actually confirmed that that's true because <laughs> my dad told me today that he had the cassette of this oh, okay uh and he thinks he still does and he was like oh yeah i play that all the time so <laughs> i definitely have familiarity with it as a kid but i know i've heard it many times since so this could easily be a song where it's very familiar to you mm-hmm not necessarily very familiar to me. That could totally be true, though. I would be—I'd be very surprised if you hadn't heard this somewhere. All right, we'll, we'll get into the like the video. Maybe oh, like the video is so blast. good! You'll love right. it. It's—it's it's really Let's good. Let's dig in. Let's dig in. They're from Australia. Mm-hmm. Well, set in the scene. It's 1970. Two 15-year-olds, Jim Mogini, who's a guitarist and keyboardist. And Andrew Bear James, a bassist, had been jamming at a local community hall in Turamura, which is a northern suburb of Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, Turamura is an Aboriginal word, which is thought to mean either high hill, big hill, or high place. So it's like a it's like plateau anywhere USA. 
Yeah. Naturally, a drummer named Rob Hurst soon joined them, and they formed the band Schwampy Moose. Naturally, yeah. Uh, It was a cover band whose repertoire was mostly Beatles songs. From what I can tell, they played together for about four years and then decided we should get a singer. Which begs the question... (laughs) Were they playing the Beatles songs instrumentally, or were they just singing them very poorly? Or did they not give credit to the vocal stylings of John Lennon and Paul McCartney? Yeah, were they maybe like, not. Fucking matter. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. Or maybe they wanted a front person. It's all person. Ringo's drums they, at the end of the day, anyway. In 1975, the Schwampy Moose Boys placed an ad in the Sydney Morning Herald for the search for their singer. And Peter Garrett, who was studying politics at Australian National University, auditioned and got the job. And the band changed their name to Farm. <laughs> it's a, uh, to me, a good move. Uh, we're getting somewhere here. <laughs> it's a little better than Trumpy Moose. It's not a great name, it's but not it's a great name. better. <laughs> it's an improvement. Yeah. Peter, the, the new singer, had... Suffered through uh, some tragedy before joining the band. Uh, He was an asthmatic child himself, and while he was a teenager, he suffered the loss of his father from an asthma attack. And then a few years later, the Garrett family home caught fire, and despite Peter's attempts to rescue his mother who was sleeping upstairs, he was the lone survivor. Jesus Christ, it's like a Trace Atkins story. Yeah, it really (laughs) definitely (laughs) is. It's tragic. Holy shit. Peter's grandfather, on his father's side, whom he never got to meet, Tom Vernon Garrett, was captured by Japanese troops during World War II and was held a prisoner of war on the SS Montevideo Maru battleship. This, uh, the Japanese ship was spotted by an American submarine, which fired torpedoes at the ship, oblivious to the fact that there were Allied prisoners on board, sinking it into the South China Sea and killing over 1,000 people mostly Australian and Kiwi prisoners of war. Wow. It's considered the worst maritime disaster in Australian history. Wow. Uh, It's been documented that Australian POWs, who were floating on pieces of the ship in the water, sang songs to their trapped comrades as the ship sank. The most recounted song they sang is Old Lang Syne, the, uh, you know, the New Year's Eve song. Classic. That's yeah. actually a song we should cover eventually. Yeah, we probably should. Uh, the shipwreckage wasn't found until this past April. Whoa! Yeah, after an extensive search by the Australian government. And Midnight Oil has a song about the maritime incident titled In the Valley, which wow. was released in 1993. Back to 1976, uh, the band Farm <laughs> also added Martin Razzi to play guitar, and he started toying around with prog rock, inspired by bands such as Yes and Jethro Tull. Over the next couple of years, the band adopted more of a punk-influenced sound, influenced by what was happening in the UK and America around 1977, which they had heard on public radio. Thus, they found fans in the surfing community and toured a bit through the coasts of Australia. However, Australia did have its own punk scene happening around the same time, mostly in Brisbane, led by a band called The Saints. And then Sydney's punk scene emerged shortly thereafter, its most prominent early punk band being Radio Birdman. Uh, Do you know these bands? 
No. Because you're, you're the punk aficionado here of the podcast. So if anyone would, you would. But did, I wasn't familiar with those, with those bands. Peter decided to pursue a law degree, and the band remained a part-time hobby. With Peter, he was recruited as the lead singer. He's yeah. got drummer energy. Yeah. What do you mean? Like getting a law degree. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like I thought the drummer is always the smart one in the group. It's like doing shit in his own, like building his own career. Oh him, yeah, just in case it doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah. But like, good, good for Peter. Okay. Well, once he graduated, they went back full time to the band. Farm was farm was back at it. If it takes off, great. But I love that he's got a little backup plan here. Good totally. Fortunately, I couldn't find any music from Farm. Midnight Oil does have a song called Farm. Okay. That you can find. The band then hired manager Gary Morris. Help him out a little bit. Uh, I read that he was a golf pro, used car salesman, martial arts exponent, and student of surf culture. <laughs> Look, I'm not trying to tell bands what to do. But if you need a good manager who's going to fucking hustle for you, that's a good resume. That's a good that's resume. A guy. Right yeah, there. totally. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Checking That's a lot guy. of boxes. He's dedicated. Oh, yeah. He's a good salesman. Hustler. Ma- he's mastered mm-hmm. multiple crafts. Yeah. I mean, he's a surfer, so he's probably good. Hey, totally. you know, he's often referred to as the band's sixth member. So he came up a lot in my research. Um, and I'm not sure if Gary is the one that suggested it, but Farm decided they should change their name. So they did what any Democratic band would do, and they drew names out of a hat. Yeah, sure. Some of the names that were in the hat that didn't make it were Television, which I believe was already taken by the famed New York yeah, art like, rock band. Like, I get the idea of being democratic <laughs> here, but you got to put the names in the hat in the first place. Maybe they didn't know about them. Um, Sparta, which was famously later taken in the 2000s by the other band that emerged from the breakup of El Paso post hardcore band at the drive in. You know, the band that wasn't Mars Volta. Oh, Sparta. Wow. I didn't know, actually didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Southern Cross, which I assume was borrowed from the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song. And look, I know we're all uh, pre-internet here. All three names, very difficult for the SEO search. Yes. You yeah, should that's name your band true. television in the year <laughs> 2025, 20, 20, 20, 2012, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh the name that was picked from the hat was, of course, Midnight Oil. Sure. Which was inspired by the Jimi Hendrix Experience song, Burning of the Midnight Lamp. Oh. We all know the idiom, Burning the Midnight Oil. Yeah, I was going to say, cool name in general. Yeah, it's great. It's a great band. Uh, it refers to someone staying up late, usually working on something. As when oil lamps were used prior to electricity, one typically had to light it again in order to stay up past midnight. All in all, badass band. So they got the name, they got the manager. When I say that the band, which uh, a lot of fans call the Oils, so I'll probably call them the Oils here and there. Okay, sure. Uh, when they went full-time, they went full-fucking-time. By 1978, they had played over 200 gigs in Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, and Adelaide. Damn. And they became known for their intense and raucous live shows led by the towering Peter Garrett's unique way of thrashing around the stage. Let's watch a video of a performance from that year. Please, I was going to say, I need some, like, context here. 
Yeah, let's check them out. Midnight Oil. It's this guy making this like shirtless movement. That's what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, that's Peter. Oh my gosh, he's scary. <laughs> the rest of the band's fucking rocking. I love that. Oh, dude, they're so good. But yeah, he's got like a. Oh, dude, the drummer looks like Springsteen. Holy shit. But yeah, the lead singer's got this like Michael Stipe, Mr. Clean fucking energy. Scary. Energy. Yeah. I like this stuff. Dude. These old videos of them are so good. This is just a cool fucking song. Yeah. Oh, he's got pipes, too. Yeah, they sound so good. Alright, 78. Yeah. I guess this is, like, very... This is cool. For the 70s, like, this is very important. Wow, I like that. Mm. Okay. Feel free to go down the rabbit hole after oh, after well. we're done. Several major record labels became interested in the oils, but the band was turned off by the ways in which the labels suggested they tone down their live act and image. They turned down the offers and formed their own independent label, Powderworks. That's an interesting critique, though. For the right? time period, especially. That's what we think makes them, look, makes them cool. Yeah, for the time period, I feel like, why wouldn't that work? I mean, punk was still super fresh. Like I know, but like even you know what you just showed me was very. I guess there's punk, but very rock and roll. And I feel yeah. like at the time, that was surprising. That that would be the critique of not signing, like not signing them because you don't think the songs are good enough, whatever. But I think they generally had some chaotic energy, um, and that's might have been off stage as well. Sure. And they also had some very strong opinions, as we will see yeah. soon. But they, they did. They formed their own label called Powderworks, and they self-funded their own debut album, which they recorded in 10 days. It was released November 1st, 1978. Here is a taste of the debut album from Midnight Oil. Uh, they, they call themselves Powderworks. The guy's bald. Yeah. He's got very bald, by the way. And uh, it's like, kind of like how... Oh, the movie. Powder. Later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, already the song you sent me sounds... That punk meets Southern Rock vibe. Yeah, kind of like a early like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yeah, I was almost even thinking like, like almost like a little like Iron Maiden-ish, like because mm. Iron Maiden's like a rock band, but it had that that quick tone. It made it a little punky. Mm-hmm. The vocals are definitely very punk, very like late seventies punk. Yeah, you're right. The vocals are very punk. The sound is very. It's a little more melodic. Yeah. Is this your album cover? It's black, black with the yeah. logo. It's definitely not. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not straight up punk, but it's punk influenced. Also reminds me of like Finn Lizzy a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Or like uh, Elvis Costello. I think a little bit of that. Ten days after the album was released, the band played an anti-uranium mining protest event in front of Sydney Town Hall. Well, that's punk. Yeah, at which the band expressed disdain for the environmental implications of the practice. This set the stage for the types of conversations the band was intending to have outside of its music and eventually within it. The album itself helped the band's popularity grow, though fans and critics didn't feel that it adequately captured the ferocity of the band's live shows, as you 
kind of alluded to. All right, the Oils released one more album, 1981's Head Injuries, on their own label Powderworks, before getting a distribution deal with CBS Records and recording in London with big-time rock producer Glenn Johns, contracted by A&M Records. He was known for his work with The Beatles, The Who, Led Zeppelin, and more of the world's most famous rock bands. Bam. The band did not get along with Glenn, and the album Place Without a Postcard wasn't the musical progression the band had desired. When A&M Records asked them to re-record some of the songs so that they were more commercially viable, they flat-out refused. However, the album's release and subsequent tour continued the popularization of the band in Australia. Very punk rock of them. Totally. Totally. Through and through. After touring that album, the band was ready to take the gloves off and start taking risks. They headed back to London, this time with a different producer and a set of songs that were far more politically charged than their previous output. The producer was Nick Launay, who had been producing records for cutting-edge punk and post-punk bands such as Public Image Limited, The Killing Joke, Gang of Four, and The Slits. The resulting album was called 10987654321. Okay. Here's a here's a song from that album. All right. So the song I'm listening to now. When did this come out? 1981. This feels very 80s. Like production-wise, the song feels very 80s. No. Yeah. So this song is a denouncement of U.S. military intervention in foreign affairs. It's called U.S. Forces. That sounds about right. Uh, Ronald Reagan was currently the U.S. president at the height of the Cold War. And the U.S. involved political unrest in Central and South America. They were ahead of the curve, you know, and that Reagan probably wasn't the best person. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool video. I really recognize this video, and I don't know where I'd seen it before. Again, vocals are super punk, despite the rest of the instrumentation. Yeah. Definitely like a post-punk thing going on. I love the video. It's uh, Yeah, it's good. Everyone should check this one out. It's very cool. It's like so simple, but yeah, shot in such a cool way. Oh, the drummer's got pop collar and shot it like an oil refinery. It seems yeah, some of that nature and those giant yeah, like industrial equipment driving around them with black yeah. lights, accentuating yeah. the intensity of the video. Yeah, it's a cool song. I like. I, I don't know where you would think this would be a hit song, but comparing to the last song. It's not as... Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has a little more New Wave element. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. All new wave. This song in particular actually reminds me of the jam. They keep coming up. It's got a little over here, too. Yeah, I can see that, too. And I think they cool. thought, thought pretty similarly about Ronald Reagan as Deepo did. True. Um, yeah. So on the last day of recording of this album, the band opened for The Who in London. Oh, right. The Who was so excited about the oils that they offered them a 56-date tour supporting them in the U.S. Let's fucking go. And the band declined. Of course they did. (laughs) (laughs) They said uh, it made no sense for them to spend time in America when the record wasn't even being distributed there and nobody could find their music. I mean, look, probably a smart decision in that sense, but also, like, I would have probably taken the 56-tour date Who tour. Well, instead, they headed back to Australia to support their new album, which was a smash. It spent two years in the Australian Top 40. Well, this is why I'm a failed music manager, because I can't, <laughs> I can't make good decisions. 
Uh, and it peaked at number three. And the album eventually did get a, a release in the U.S. via Columbia Records and cracked the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart at 178. I mean, yeah. There you go. There you go. Smart so Peter said, uh, we wanted as a band to make this album lyrically stronger because these are fucking desperate times. It's very important for us to get immediate because we can't go on making records like this for years and years and people can't go on ignoring it. They're fucking smart. Okay. Rolling Stones uh, famed critic David Frick said the album sounds like the end of the world turned up to 10. Oh. Great line. Great line. Yeah, great line. In 1989, Computer hackers in Melbourne attacked computers manufactured by American company DEC, which later merged with Compaq and Hewlett Packard. They used a worm program. These are all companies that don't exist. Anymore. Yeah, they used a worm program <laughs> called Wank, in all caps, W A N K. And the message that displayed on the screens after being attacked were the Midnight Oil lyric, You talk of times of peace for all and then prepare for war. And it's from it's Whoa. from that album, and it's widely believed that Julian Assange was connected to this operation. A young Julian Whoa. Assange, but it has yet to be proven, of course, because it's Julian Assange. No shit, yeah, pretty wild. That's cool. Yeah. So the Oil's next album, Red Sails in the Sunset, was recorded in Tokyo, Japan, and was their first Australian number one, and again squeaked into the U.S. top 200 album chart. And its lead single, Best of Both Worlds, received some airplay on MTV. I know they're they're in Australia, so it's obviously a lot closer to Japan. But there's something like mm-hmm. so cool about saying like, oh yeah, we recorded that <laughs> in Japan. Oh, we recorded wow, Tokyo. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely definitely like, true. already. This song uh, sounds rad as fuck. Oh, it's so good. Like, I feel like from the first song that you sent me to this one, this makes a lot more sense, but mm-hmm. obviously you see the progression. Yeah. It's a cool band. It's a very cool band. The the singing, again, is a very new wave, you're right. And the, they're, and the video is definitely practicing <laughs> with, like, green screen, age, CGI. Yeah. Green well, I think those planets might be miniatures, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's cool, though. Oh, it's like super it. cool. It that guitar riff is so good. Oh, there's Ronald Reagan. Um, Ronald Reagan is the Vietnam War. So the album cover for Red Sails in the Sunset uh, is by Japanese artist Sunahisa Kimura, and it featured a photo montage of Sydney cratered and devastated after a hypothetical nuclear attack. So 80s. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, that's kind of intense. There's <laughs> a there's a shirt with the entire album cover as a shirt. Oh wow, it's uh, that's intense. It yeah, it's a weird shirt. That's a statement. <laughs> this is the point where some critics were starting to be turned off by the band's socio political subject matter. One review that stood out to me was Don Shuey in Rolling Stone in which he favorably compared the oils to The Clash and Gang of Four, which makes sense, mm-hmm. but then said there are references to local politics and history that stud the group's songs and account in large part for its huge appeal down under, 
may seem exotic or puzzling to Americans. Okay, but is that like is that like a a like a, a, a juvenile viewpoint? Hey, like, what are they going to do? They they're Australian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, okay. they're an Australian like punk esque band. Like, what do you you want to be singing about? DC. They already did a Reagan song. Yeah, they did that two albums ago. <laughs> but yeah, so there there were a, a number of uh, critics that didn't understand. We're just post Vietnam, and I feel like. In the U.S., we're coming off of World War II. World War II with a outside of Pearl Harbor, we were like, war never touched us directly, and right. Vietnam was such a touch point because we lost so many young soldiers in Vietnam, and Vietnam was was such a hot point for the U.S. But Vietnam was not close to us; it was not in our backyard, right? And we're getting into the Cold War times in the 80s. And Cold War, that was the first time where we understood as Americans, I imagine, not being like a a full-fledged human being in the 80s. In the 80s, this is the first time that war could really touch us because Mm -hmm. the Soviet Union could send bombs and, and nukes to the U.S. soil. We're really impacted by it. But I think we're still so far from the reality yeah detached but yeah we're so detached from it all so it's easy for us to look at an australian band and be like oh well they're speaking from what they know but they're so much closer to the reality and especially if you record this album in japan japan is (laughs) an absolute area where you could be easily bombed by russia and they've and they've talked they've been through so many war times well yeah 100 percent. yeah and we're talking about war in your backyard yeah like, they're way closer than we are we we can't speak into that yeah absolutely and i was already talking about the, the pacific stuff near australia that was happening in world war ii yeah. like right in their backyard now hold up you didn't think we would do an entire episode about a band called midnight oil and not talk about dark matter coffee after all oil is black and black coffee is black and if you're burning the midnight oil trying to finish a presentation for work or school or whatever it might be you need caffeine and Dark Matter Coffee is the best form of caffeine that you can get. Straight out of Chicago, head to darkmattercoffee.com and use the code WANTEDAHITCAST for free shipping. That's right. Wanted a hit cast for free shipping. And you can try Dark Matter Coffee yourself. Trust me, it's the best. In 1986, the Oils were invited to tour the Australian Outback with two Aboriginal rock bands, Wawrumpi Band and Colored Stone. Aboriginal peoples are one of the two distinct groups of indigenous peoples of Australia, the other being Torres Strait Islander peoples. The three bands staged concerts, talked with tribal elders, and saw European occupation through the eyes of its original inhabitants, including the poor health and living standards in which many of the people they met were living in. Drummer Rob Hurst said, We got to see the best and the worst of the Australian desert in the 80s. Back then, there was an epidemic of petrol sniffing, which was turning some of the kids into bush zombies. There's a lot of domestic violence in some of the communities and a lot of alcoholism, too. There are a lot of negatives, but those were also some of the most marvelous times we had together as a band alongside the Walrumpi band, playing music under the stars, 
to people whose ancestors had been there for up to 80,000 years. Uh, so this tour was became known as the Blackfella Whitefella Tour. Wow. Uh, and here's a video of Midnight Oil performing with the Warupi Band and Colored Stone in the Australian Outback. All the people of different races that's cool. They sound so good too. Like the harmonies are great. There's crocodiles. <laughs> this is super cool. Oh, I love this. I'm at like 3.5. This is cool. Yeah. So the beginning, they're on a they're on a like a riverboat and uh, singing on the on the boat, playing instruments, and then. There's footage of them on stage during the tour. Playing electric. I know nothing about Australia. This is what I'm learning from <laughs> Definitely some E, e- Street Band vibes, right? 100%. I guess that the uh, the drummer again in this video yeah. looks like he's from Bruce Um But you're right. There is yeah, like even the Aboriginal bands look like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. <laughs> Yeah, one dude's rocking like a crocodile Dundee look. The music's very cool, though. I'm, re- I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. I love it. Midnight Oil, Black Fella, White Fell, and the Dead Heart. So much happened here. Yeah, so the Dead Heart is a song. Is the song they're singing. And it's about... Uh, the Outback is often called the Dead Heart of Australia because it's just so barren. Ah. Yeah, you're right. I'm getting towards the end of this video. The lead singer now looks like Freddy Krueger, <laughs> but the rest of the band is like giving me total E Street vibes. Yeah. Interesting, <laughs> even like the way they're drumming. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. Very cool. So Andrew McMillan, uh, who was on tour with them, it's an author. Uh, he wrote a book about it called Strict Rules, and uh, he described the first show of the tour as an awakening for Midnight Oil. Uh, being from the city in Sydney and then touring the Outback. And he said that on this tour, they were reduced to the level of a settlement band, a bunch of strangers in a strange land with only their wits and their songs to get by on. Mm. Yeah. Quick aside, one of my favorite new bands in the last couple of years is this band called King Stingray, and they're from Australia. And one of the members, uh, Dima Burwanga, plays guitar and didgeridoo in the band his grandfather was in the warumpi band that was playing with, oh, wow. uh, with midnight oil uh, i can't recommend this band enough it's like surfy indie rock and most of it's in english but some of the lyrics are in uh y'all knew matha which is an aboriginal dialect but it's super cool it's it's very very good uh they have a song called camp dog that's really good and then they were on Triple J Radio, uh, and it's on YouTube. They play a song called "Get Me Out." It's just, it's just good shit. Triple J. If you know, you we mentioned this. I think during the uh, the last episode, the uh, the Natalie episode. If you're an American listener, there are a many Triple J playlists you can find. Triple J being like the the, it's like the rock playlist. Yeah, it's like the, the, the big rock station there. Uh, plenty of Triple J playlists you can find about hot in Australia. So much good shit. So much good And I forget to go back to the way. You're, you're better about it than I am, but like, anytime you want some new music, 
hit Triple J on your phone. It's no secret that I listen to a lot of Australian music. There's a reason. I need, be, I need to be better about it. I, I used to be good about it, but I'll send you some stuff. Good stuff. Send you some stuff. Yeah, please do. Put it, put it in the socials. Let, get the get the fans in too. The black fella, white fella tour was so enlightening to the oils that the plight and struggles and triumphs of the Aboriginal peoples at the hands of colonization and oppression started to heavily influence their songwriting, and the band soon started work on their next album. Diesel and Dust. Diesel and Dust. There's a, a really good article about this album in Mix Online, which is a, an online magazine about music production. This article is from 2014 by Barbara Schultz. And she talks about how they enlisted the help of a producer named Warren Livesey to uh, produce this record. Uh, and he had worked with The The and Julian Cope and a number of other artists. Uh, to help take their sounds to a larger audience. So, like that's that's what Midnight Oil was trying to do now. It's like, let's take what we're doing and make it even wider. And they spent a long time sending the producer demos and like having conversations with the record and everything. Beds are burning. The song that we that is the topic of this episode was one of the last songs that they wrote for the album, and it was in the last batch of demos. I gotta be said. honest, I, I forgot the name and, of the song we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of it. <laughs> it's been a lot of information, too. Oh, yeah. The demo didn't have any verse lyrics in it. It was just the chorus. Huh. And he responded right away and was like, oh, my God, this is killer. And the, the lyrics are great. So he traveled to Australia to begin pre-production with the band. Uh, and they ended up making this record together. Well, much of the album, including... One of the lead singles, The Dead Heart, which we just heard, um, it detailed the mistreatment of indigenous Australians and the non-recognition of indigenous cultures in Australia. And it was part of efforts to raise awareness of Australia's stolen generations. Do you know Do you know what this, what stolen generations refers to? Uh, I believe I do, but remind me so I don't act like an idiot when I try to describe <laughs> how I know about it. <laughs> Stolen Generations refers to the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who were removed from their families by the Australian government yeah. between 1860 and the 1970s, uh, an effort to assimilate them to white Australian culture rather than their indigenous roots. Uh, these children were taken by the police, typically from their homes, on their way to or from school. It was horrific. Um, they were placed in over 480 institutions, adopted or fostered by non-Indigenous people, and sometimes subjected to abuse. The children were denied all access to their culture. They were not allowed to speak their language, and they were punished if they did. The impacts of this are still being felt today. There are currently more than 17,000 stolen generation survivors in Australia. Over one-third of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are their descendants. Um, and in Western Australia, almost half of the population have stolen generation links. Damn. And- so I knew, I knew a little bit about this. Uh, I didn't realize it was that, that widespread. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. So if anyone's looking to learn more about this, uh, there are a number of resources online, but there's a great documentary that I'd actually seen before. Uh, it's called Stolen Generations. It's from 2000 by Darlene Johnson. You can find that on YouTube. Uh, and I actually learned about this because. 
Uh, years ago, I worked a little bit with Aboriginal country singer Roger Knox, and he is known in Australia as Black Elvis. Very cool dude. Yeah. I- so he made an album with John Langford. That's another incredible piece of, of art that highlights some of these issues. It's called Stranger in My Land. So that's where I first learned about it. Like you've told me about this. That's why I, I mean, that's how I know about it. Okay. Um, and then I learned more by, uh, by learning about this album. Beds are burning. That song in particular is more about the root issue of Aboriginal native land being stolen and populations being forcibly removed from their homes, mostly so the land could be used for agriculture and mining. The pre-chorus line is, it belongs to them, let's give it back. This version of Beds Are Burning that was sent to the producer Hmm. that didn't have any verse lyrics, they had that already when they were in the Outback. Hmm. So the lyrics as we know them in the verses, well, as you will know them as you listen to the song more, those were written on the tour. So they would play Beds Are Burning at shows, and the lyrics, they'd add more lyrics every show, and the lyrics would morph throughout the tour, and then at the end, the song was done, essentially. Oh, cool. It's a fun way to write a song. Rob Hurst, the drummer, he is the main songwriter for the song, and uh, he, he talks about a moleskin notebook that he had the whole time during the trip, uh, and he was like, you know, taking it taking it around all the shows and had it with him all the time and it was just like covered in dust and tattered and just like totally destroyed from being in the outback but that's the book where he wrote this song what did i say drummer on his shit right yeah totally they know what they're doing i didn't get to this till later in my research but there's a 2019 piece about the song in songwriting magazine and I learned that the Beds Are Burning, the chorus that they had started before the Outback Tour, was written because they had been approached from some Native folks from the Outback whom they knew, who had said, you should write a song to commemorate the handing back of Ayers Rock to the Native people. So Ayers Rock, which is a very famous uh natural landmark in australia um now called uluru or originally called uluru and call that again now yeah um that was given back to the pitjenjara people in australia and so that was a big it was a big celebration it was a huge monumental achievement and triumph of those people uh that the australian government had given it back to them after uh more than 100 years so they asked the band they were like you should write a song about it because you're a political band and and we think it'd be cool and rob was the one that told them the drummer said we could have a crack at it but surely there's a first nations band that should be approached first i would think good good people yeah and they suggested some of their their aboriginal friends that play in bands and and these folks said no we want you to do it because we need the message to go to the big cities and reach a larger audience. We don't feel like the Aboriginal bands will be able to do that. We need someone with nationwide success like Midnight Oil. So that's how they started the song and they finished the song in the Outback. Um, and the title lyric, the metaphor, how can we sleep while our beds are burning? Rob actually went to an art exhibition about Italian fascism during World War II. 
And there's an ex- expression in Italian that goes, how could you sleep when beds are burning? Mm. And it refers to people ignoring the atrocities of fascists who are in power. So he took that and flipped it for what was going on in Australia. Uh, and he said he set out to write a song about an ancient Australian community who had so much thrown at it, but was still joyfully dancing in the desert. Like thinking about it from any angle, it's a line that whether you've known war or not, you can immediately put yourself in that position. It's so visceral. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. That's a good word for yourself in that position. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Rob said he hoped the chorus would send a real shiver down the spine and that Pete's delivery of the verse would sound very Australian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and they made the song as uniquely Australian as they could um, in an effort to build community among Australians who are different from one another and rally around a common cause. There are references to specific Australian places, such as the Kintore Ranges in Northern Territory, where large communities of the Pintupi people have been displaced, and Yundumu, another region with a sizable native population. Um, and the song also has a lyric uh, in the first verse, Holden Rex and Boylan Diesels. Holden was an Australian car manufacturer and a division of General Motors that was a staple of the automotive market in Australia and New Zealand until it closed in 2020. And then they also mention Bloodwood, Desert Oak, Broken River. Those are all Australian topographical features mentioned in the song. So this song is very Australian. Yeah, that's cool. That's those like three words you just said were also names of new labels in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> they all sound like... Yeah, they do. Yeah, they totally country do. Country sound names, you know? Yeah. Broken River Records. Um, Dead Oak Records. <laughs> In an essay about this song by Nick Fieldes in the book, The Life of a Song, Volume 2, the fascinating stories behind 50 more of the world's best love songs, uh, he well, mentioned Nick. I never heard of the song, so <laughs> hey, I didn't know. A lot of people have. We'll see. Get to the charts soon. <laughs> the final bars of the song, and I think throughout the song, actually, there's a, a ticking clock or a sound of a ticking clock. Uh and he says it's suggesting that the time hasn't just come, but it's about to pass. And wow. uh, I found it so interesting from this essay that one of the guys working on the album, who was from EMI, he said that they were experimenting in the studio to get a clicking sound to be like a clock. And they eventually landed on miking a metronome, placing it in someone's mouth, and then the musician would open and close their mouths over the device into a mic. It's got to be an easier way, but maybe not, maybe not in the 80s. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah. Reminded me how they did the Devo whip in the hallway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must also mention that the horn section that plays in the song is made up of members from the popular Australian pub rock band Hunters and Collectors. So let's check them out. Let's check out Hunters and Collectors. Good friends of Midnight Oil. From what I can tell, this is one of their biggest, biggest Australian hits. So 90s. Yeah, it's very 90s. Pretty cool song. Big U2 influence, I would say. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I like it too. 
it, yeah, definitely YouTube vibes. It might be something else too. Uh, Get like any slob religious band in the 90s. <laughs> There's the horns. Oh, there's the horns. Oh, right there. So that's the horn section. That's it. Yeah. Hey, the horns, to give it like uh, just the slightest guy vibe. We're not there, we're not there yet, but they're, they're kind of coming. Oh, a little bit too. A little, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's coming. The ska wave coming into uh, pop music is like three years after this. The music video, you haven't seen it. Well, maybe you have. But I'm excited to hear the fucking song. It is. <laughs> it is. This video. Maybe I'll know it. I don't this know. video is terrific, and it is so Australian. I, I hate that this is the first episode where I'm like so blind to the actual song <laughs> I'm talking about. Well. It was bound to happen, and I'm really surprised it's a song. Midnight Oil is a great name for a band. Such a great band name. I'm glad we're here. Yeah, and and you've been you've been all over all the music. So yeah, I've never seen this Freddy Krueger video. (laughs) What? Because of the hat? (laughs) No, no, dude. (laughs) He's got a little bit of a Krueger vibe. All right, the drummer's got his collar down. Now he looks like. He looks like Brian Rothenwell from Gus Gurdon. He looks like Bruce Springsteen, but still. Yeah, they're they're driving through the outback. They've got an Australian shepherd with them. There's these Australian like branchy trees. Uh, oh, Aboriginal people in it. I mean, it's really cool. All right, now they're in the chorus. This sounds familiar. Okay. Now they're hearing it better, but I guarantee you, I've never heard this song. Outside of some random playlist, random playlist, or like of like I'm listening to like 80s hits, or it was like in a bar and you weren't like paying attention to it. Well, now you got to hit it on the jukebox. This video was directed by Australian cinematographer Andrew DeGroot. His only directing credits are two Midnight Oil videos and a video by Hunters and Collectors, the band we just talked about. Uh, but otherwise, he shoots film and TV shows. Uh, and it was yeah. shot in the Australian outback in the Mundi Mundi Plains. Sure. Yeah. That's all I know. I couldn't find much else about the production of the video. I think it's a pretty rad video. I mean, he he is so engaging and so interesting. He's so engaging. I will say that like there there are shots of the indigenous people that feel a little placated in the video. Mm-hmm. But knowing the history of the band, they're not. Right. But it, the video feels a little self I could see that. That part definitely makes sense. But again, yeah. knowing the band, now that you told me. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. It feels a little, little weird for me. Oh, the end? They got the moon? Yeah. And also, like, the Green silhouettes screen? in it, I think are really cool. Cool video, overall. The song, the song is actually cool. Notice the play count. 229 million oh, God damn. plays wow. on this thing. Yeah. What's yeah. the number one comment? Uh, I don't know. You know you're listening to magic when 40 years later it's still relevant and still sends chills down your spine. Well, thank you, Joe Down Under 2976, for making me feel. <laughs> is that really what it is? Old. Joe Down Under? It is. <laughs> and uh, yes, you pointed out the fact that 1987, it's almost 40 years. Jackass. Well, thanks, Joe, from Down Under. 
Pardon the interruption, but I, Theo, have a favor to ask of you, and I'm throwing in a fun incentive as well. I will be running the New York City Marathon in just a few short weeks, and I'm raising money for an amazing organization called the Hole in the Wall Gang. Started by the late, great Paul Newman, the Hole in the Wall Gang sends seriously ill children and their families free of charge to camp so that these kids can take a break, have fun, and be around a community of amazing people who understand what they're going through. It's a different type of healing and one that I am so proud to be supporting. So if you're able, please head to our socials, find the link, and you can donate. Here's the fun part. For all of our listeners who donate, please include your name and a song recommendation for us to one day cover on this very podcast. We're going to choose one lucky listener, and we will do a special episode dedicated to you, and we will talk about the song of your choice. So again, head to our socials, find the link to my charity page, donate some dollars if you're able, and give us your best song recommendation. Thank you, and back to the show. I think this will be fun. Where do you think Beds Are Burning charted on the Billboard Hot 100? Number three, because you've already told me that I'm a fucking idiot for not knowing this song. <laughs> number three. Wait, was I that disparaging? Yeah. Number three. I've never, never heard the song my entire life. Number three. Uh, it was number 17. Number God 17. damn it, close enough. <laughs> yeah, but it did hit number six on the mainstream rock chart. And the album Diesel and Dust hit number 21 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums Chart. So, did pretty well. Did pretty well it, 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 It's good music. Good for fucking them. I just I never heard the song. It's very good music. Hey, right, I'm, so not, I'm number, not saying these things to make you feel 17? bad. I'm here to educate. Number you. 17? Uh, 17 the top on the Hot 16. Let's yeah. fucking go. 16? I have Give a top, the top 10. 10. Let's do the top 10. 10, Rick Astley, Together Forever. Of course. Number 9, New Sensation, NXS, Australian band. Yeah, that's a good song. Uh, Number 8, Nothing But A Good Time, Mechanicsburg, PA's own, Poison. Oh, wow. (laughs) Number 7, Def Leppard, Pour Some Sugar On Me, which, this is so interesting because... Is that going up or down? It's going up, yeah. That's going up, so it's Nothing But A Good Time and New Sensation. But, like, Midnight Oil versus these things is like dark and gritty and punk and just saying something. It's like a, a total antithesis of the other things that are on the top of the the rock yeah, songs I, that are I, on the top. I can see it working. Oh, sure. Oh, totally. It's just uh, I, I feel like, I feel like these are a lot of you. these are a lot of songs that would. So the modern rock chart turned into the alternative chart. Yeah, and like a lot of that stuff didn't jump over. It just stayed over there. It was like college rock stuff and, you know, those cool bands. Number six is Mercedes Boy by Pebbles. Uh, that, that I don't know. Mercedes Boy is Pebbles? Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable one at one. This song sucks. I've, I've <laughs> never heard this in my entire life. I've never heard this. It's like a Janet Jackson ripoff. Oh, wow. You're right. Total Janet ripoff. Okay. Well, that's what it is. Uh, number five, Bruce Hornsby, The Valley Road. Ooh, okay, interesting. The Valley Road. Uh, number four, The Jets, Make It Real. Interesting. Number three, Cheap Trick, another good rock band, The Flame. Yeah, okay. Uh, Debbie Gibson at number two, as you would with Foolish Beat. Mm-hmm. And number one, Michael Jackson, Dirty Diana. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, every Michael Jackson song hit number one. <laughs> yeah, but like the top five is 
all strange. I mean, like, some of those songs, actually, the entire top five are songs that I would be like, okay, yeah, charted, but yeah, all surprising. Would be that high? Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would all say surprising for Top Pony, honestly. Like, all songs I know, but I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, the ones below are like, pour some sugar on me, nothing but a good time, new sensation. Like, those are smash hits. But those are bubbling. Wait, what year is this? What? what this what? Eighty-seven, eighty-eight. I was eighty-eight once it hit in America. Once it peaked. It's got to be a weird transition year i mean year, yeah year. late 80s time. and then on the other on the other side where like midnight oil was you've got like the cure and replacements and rem and depeche mode and like oh, all yeah. that shit is going on over there um on the modern rock chart and then some of those songs will end up on the hot 100 but beds are burning reach number one in new zealand south africa and canada canada once again not as uh, good Australia, it was it peaked at number six. Yeah, it was number six in Australia and United Kingdom and Ireland. They're not quite as uh, rambunctious or like silly, but they definitely got Chumbawamba vibes. Yeah, in a few ways. Hundred percent. Which which is our our best performing episode. So, uh, yeah, it still is. Well, Rammstein's getting there. But, oh, wow. Okay, to be uh, fair, most of our listeners apparently are in Germany, Australia. So <laughs> yeah, all right. We do have a lot. Uh, so Beds Are Burning has been covered many times by prominent artists, including Patti Smith. What? Bill Wyman. Yeah. Bill Wyman, Julia Stone, Amanda Palmer, AWOL Nation, and Rise Against together. What? Uh, what? <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, Come Back Kid and more. You're welcome to check those out on your own time. But I want to highlight one cover in particular. You're not going to send me the Rise Against version? <laughs> Alright, you want to hear it? Yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> I definitely have it pulled up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, on, on streaming it was Rise Against, but it's, I guess just the lead singer. But... Tim, Tim McGillrath. It's not, it's not great. I also am not really an AWOL Nation person. It, now that I hear it, though, I just makes all sense, actually. It does. I, need, I needed to hear it to connect with that. The vocals, for sure, make sense. All right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. But you know what? We're doing the song. More people are hearing it. Great. Yeah. The cover I want to talk about. Yes, please. Uh, in 2009, as part of a climate justice campaign by the Global Humanitarian Forum, a version of Beds Are Burning with adaptive lyrics was recorded with 60 musicians from around the world before the United Nations talks in Copenhagen. The vocalists included Lily Allen, Simon Laban of Duran Duran, Tyson Ritter of All American Rejects, Klaus Meine of Scorpions, actors Marion Cotillard and Mia Jovovich, Theophilus London, Tazon Day, the Chocolate Rain Guy. Right. Fergie. Ed Robertson of Bare Naked Ladies. Mark Ronson and a bunch of people I don't recognize. And Kofi Annan does the intro of the song. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu does the outro. Oh my god. And guess who else is in the song, and you won't be surprised. Bono? 
Bob Geldof. <laughs> 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 I was trying to make the connection, yeah. but you made it for me. <laughs> your your laugh was was worth oh worth God. the comedic timing there. <laughs> this is not very good. It's so bad. It is so bad okay, in every way. It is horrible. It sounds like some fucking like COVID Zoom shit. It's so bad. And I'm sure the band was like, yeah, because because they had to get permission because they changed the lyrics. They were like, yeah, it's a good cause. Go do it. It's not good. This is a great video to show our children when the world's burning. And we could be like, look, we tried. But 14 years earlier, another generation tried as well. And this this is the example we'll show. Like, 14 years earlier, we knew climate change was a problem. And a bunch of great people put together this video, uh, and it fucking stuck, and uh, nothing happened. And I'm not blaming them, but this video came out 14 years ago, and it sucks. <laughs> and it did with them, obviously. Here we are. Yeah. Oh my god. Rough it's off. so bad. And they took away all the intensity of the song. Oh, you, I, I had a good night, Mike, and you, now you're really <laughs> No, I... Christ. No, I I added a good night because you now know about Midnight Oil who rule. So let's I get back into Midnight Oil. Let's get back the into it. The world is still burning thanks to t- thanks to oil in general. <laughs> well, so yeah. hey, after taking a couple years off of touring, Midnight Oil returned to the global stage during the closing ceremony of the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Wow! And they took advantage of playing to the largest audience they would ever have. It sounds, it sounds good. To be honest. Oh, it sounds great. Uh, the band uh, ripped off their outfits that they were get, that they had come into the stadium with, and then their clothes said "Sorry." And the stunt was aimed at John Howard, the Conservative Prime Minister of Australia, who was in the audience, who had stubbornly refused to issue a formal apology to the indigenous population over the country's historical mistreatment of its original inhabitants. Wow. Now they're on stage. No one knew they were doing this. It is very cool. It is. But I want to I want to say a couple things. One, as a creative person, fucking cool. I love that. As someone who would used to work in live events and also music um, why would you put the band that is so against all the things you believe on stage as a closing band you knew they were going to do some shit like that oh yeah it's like maybe maybe, maybe they maybe they, maybe they knew and it's an iconic performance and it's fucking dope and in, like, and in Australia it's, it's one of the most famous acts of protest in history it is a huge moment Nothing large enough where they would like kick us off live TV, yeah. but enough where like the the point. Yeah, and they sound great. This, oh yeah. This actually, oh, it this sounds is probably so my favorite good. video you sent me all night. Like, they, they sound really good. They yeah. sound awesome. Uh, that essay that was in that Life of a Songbook, uh, it says the first public airing of Beds Are Burning took place in front of a handful of curious people, some sitting on the bonnets of their cars. In one of the remotest pockets of Australia, fourteen years later, the same song was performed to a global audience of around one billion 
and what became one of the most famous acts mm. of protest in Australia's musical history. I mean, that's a story. Fuck yeah. So cool. I just got chills. I literally just got chills. Eight years after this, in 2008, the apology for, quote, this blemish chapter in our nation's history was delivered by Kevin Rudd, who is then the Prime Minister of Australia, on behalf of the country. Uh, Peter was at that stage on the front benches as Indigenous rights took center in Canberra almost two decades after the band quote from the uh, from the essay breathed Australian diesel and dust into the global charts diesel and dust yep that's just I mean that full circle yeah part of the story really got me the band released several more albums in the 90s after Diesel and Dust. As part of the performances for the follow-up album, Blue Sky Mining, Midnight Oil protested the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska with an unannounced performance in front of Exxon's New York City headquarters. Oh, wow. Where they played the title track. That song reached number 47 on the Billboard Hot 100. There's a little bit of irony that the band is called Midnight Oil. I know, I know. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's great. And then they had two more number one alternative singles in America. So that's why I was like, ah, one hit wonder, I don't know. Like, it, it's hard to, in America, it's hard to say. But okay. um, they disbanded in 2002 when Peter decided to focus his energy on a political career. In 1984, he had almost been elected to public office. And then the band took off, and he gave the political part up after, you know, it was after law school. So he returned to this line of work after the band's initial breakup, and he was elected to his first governmental position in 2004. He went on to represent the Australian Labor Party in a succession of government posts, including as a member of the Australian House of Representatives and as Minister for the Environment, Heritage, and wow. the Arts. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's why he was sitting by when the Prime Minister finally issued an apology to the wow. indigenous people. He was there on official business. That's pretty uh, Yeah. When Peter was in the process of being pre-selected as a Labour candidate for the Labour seat of Kingsford Smith in Sydney, then Foreign Minister Alexander Downer made comments in Parliament that he thought that this would be detrimental to the Australia-USA alliance. Because he quoted lyrics from the Midnight Oil song, U.S. Forces, <laughs> and said that uh, he should not become a Labor MP. And it didn't work. He, he, got, he got elected. Uh, I would say that's why he should be. Yeah, right? Labor P. Give him a little challenge, right? Why not? 17 years later, in 2019, the band reunited for a tour and a new album, The Macarada Project. This was also a concept album focusing on justice for First Nations people in Australia. It was made to support 2017's Uluru Statement from the Heart, which called for the establishment of a First Nations voice in the Australian Constitution and the establishment of a commission to supervise agreement-making and truth-telling between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the Australian government. And all proceeds from the album were given to the cause. Wow. We'd like to include a quick update 
as several days after we recorded this episode, there was a vote in Australia for a referendum that would have created an advocacy committee to offer advice to Parliament on policies that affect Indigenous people, the nation's most disadvantaged ethnic minority. And this referendum is the very topic of this Midnight Oil album that we are discussing at this point in the show. And unfortunately, the referendum did not pass uh, to many people's dismay. So there's clearly more work to do, and I'm sure we will hear from Midnight Oil on the topic again. Upon the band's reunion, they toured Australia, including the Outback. They went back. New Zealand, the US, Canada, Europe, South Africa, and Singapore. And they released another album. But last year, they played what they called the final Midnight Oil Tour. We'll see if it sticks. All well, in all, it won't stick. If this podcast is going to come out, and people like me are going to be introduced <laughs> to them for the first time. Yeah. And we're going to demand that Midnight Oil comes and tours North America. I know. I'd love to see them. All in all, Midnight Oil's career has spanned five decades, 13 albums, and over 20 million album sales. And I just heard about them. <laughs> right? That's amazing. <laughs> uh, it's, that's, it's great. I'm glad you just heard about uh, uh, it. It's great. It's very fun. You know, as for the songs popular in the U.S., I really couldn't find an origin point. I was hoping I'd find like a radio station that was like, like I knew they had a, a little bit of airplay here. MTV played that one video. But like I was hoping there was like a K-Rock, you know, or yeah. a, a KXP that was like playing this song. But I, I couldn't find anything and I couldn't find any origin of why it got so huge here. Um, That's wild. I know that that video got played on MTV a lot, but there's no timeline for its success. I, I searched and searched. I think it was just kind of a, I think it got so massive where they were that, and it's such a great rock and roll song that it just spread. There has to be a catalyst somewhere that we, I would we think might so. never know. Yeah. Maybe, all, maybe EMI. All yeah. So like, it's so, so hard, hard to say. To, yeah. And the band is kind of like, oh, we couldn't believe that it got big everywhere, but they don't give any context as to how it happened. But I will say what's unlikely about the song is how unmistakably Australian it is. <laughs> like I mean, the, yeah, the lingo, his voice, the instrumentation, and and the fact that it made such a huge impact here. Even though I doubt anybody understood all the references in the song, is is a testament to the song in the band. And we and I know that it took its message and mission further because for every ten people that listen to it, one person's probably like, "What, they, what the hell are they talking about? I got I got to check this out." Like. What's going on? Yeah, or they watch an interview, or they, they, they read they an article. Yeah, in the country of itself, and that's for natural. sure. Yeah, definitely. But the uh, song is cool. It obviously resonated. We may never know, but if yeah. anyone knows, hit the mailbag. The Midnight Oil were determined to be seen as an Australian band. Drummer Rob Hirsch said, "Land rights are something that appear in so many countries around the world: New Zealand, Canada, United States, etc." We were determined the Midnight Oil would not be seen as an international band, writing songs that could have come from anywhere. We were determined to put place names and other specific bits and pieces in all of our songs. Oh, I love they stuck to their guns. Yeah. I love that. Especially in an age where cool a lot of rock songs are vague, so it can be about anything. And they're like, no, we're putting like specific references in here so you know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, they're fucking rad. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame included Beds Are Burning on its list of 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Wow. Peter says, In retrospect, Beds was the song we were born to record. 
It's got all the bits to make it work, strong rhythms, good melody, and the lyrics had some punch while being very Aussie. It took a while to stick. It's incredible how much it still gets played around the, pl- the place. Who would have thought that an Aboriginal land rights song would travel that far? Rob Hurst, the drummer, had an interesting perspective where he said that we would be getting above ourselves to think that the song had made a difference. The truth is, in many respects, some of those problems I mentioned earlier still exist, and in some places it's worse. That isn't because a whole lot of good-meaning people haven't gone to the desert and done their best. It's been a huge amount of goodwill, a huge amount of money. There's still a collision of cultures there in many ways. However, I would say in the arts particularly, there have been huge gains, massive ground that's been made. I wouldn't want to be completely bleak, but I wouldn't want to be over the top about it either. There's still a long way to go. I think that's kind of sums up a lot of what we've been talking about when it comes to this type of political music. Um, But I think these guys got the word out and here we are in 2023 telling their story and telling our listeners about what this is about. And I hope that more people listen to their music, but also do their research about the issues and check out the Aboriginal bands clearly still making an impact. The band seems like so genuine. Yeah, they really do. I, I've enjoyed everything you've sent me today, so I need to do a deep dive in this band. Apparently, I'm glad. Yeah, you're gonna be you're gonna be a number one fan of Midnight Oil. I love it. First song, you're like, I'm in. This is great. I love I'm, this. I mean, it sounds great. I just I've never heard this band. So first time, this is, this is fun. It's first time I've uh, been completely in dark. I know it's amazing. Well, let me uh, let me finish with a quotation from the National Library of Australia. <laughs> okay, you had to yeah. name the most Australian rock act of all time without resorting to cork hats and logger phones. It's hard to go past Midnight Oil. They emerged from a cultural scene unique to Australia, the Sydney surf scene. They made their name in a musical genre unique to Australia, the pub rock scene, and they tackled lyrical content unique to Australia. These guys are Australian. There you go. go. That is Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil. That's uh, that's my that's my second Aussie episode in a row. I seriously, yeah, you know, you're you're the Aussie lover. Am I gonna do uh, minute work next? Who knows? Have we not done that yet. No, we haven't yet. We should. Yeah, we probably should. We'll just do it now in real time. We'll do a live a live episode. I told you <laughs> we should do a live episode. <laughs> we should. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted to Hit. Thanks for listening. Good luck getting that song out of your head. If you enjoyed the show, please do all the things podcasts usually ask you to. They really help. Tell a friend about the show, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, write a review on your favorite podcast app, and visit our website, ywahpod.com. That's ywahpod.com for updates on new episodes and our merch store. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, coffee mugs, stickers, and more. And it all goes back into the podcast. We would love to hear what you thought of the episode, and we also want to hear if there's something that we missed. You can reach us on Instagram and Twitter at YWHpod, or directly via email at ywhpod at gmail.com. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Bible, and our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.